Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Association for Undergraduate Education at Research Universities, formerly known as the Reinvention Collaborative, and now shortened as URU to emphasize the U-E-R-U part of our name. We may have a new name, but we're still a Boyard-inspired national consortium of leading research universities dedicated to strengthening undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandino, Executive Director, and Liz Bennett, Associate Director, and we come to you from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, the host of URU. Today's guest is Father James L. Hecht, Altenbrook's Professor of Religion at the University of Southern California and founder and president emeritus of the Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies. Father Heft was honored with the Theodore Hesburgh Award for long and distinguished service to Catholic higher education in 2011. He served on the board of the American Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities and chaired that board for two years. He spent many years at the University of Dayton serving as chair of the theology department for six years, provost of the university for eight years, and then chancellor for 10 years. He left the University of Dayton in the summer of 2006 to found the Institute for Advanced Catholic Studies at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Father Heft has written and edited numerous books and written more than 150 articles and book chapters. Most recently, he co-edited Empty Churches, Non-Affiliation in America with Jan Stetz and wrote and published with Oxford University Press, The Future of Catholic Higher Education, which examines the relationship between the academy and the church and covers topics ranging from secularization to academic freedom to campus ministry, analyzing both the challenge and the promise of the future of Catholic higher education in the United States. Welcome, Father Hecht. Welcome, Thank you very much. Thanks. Yeah, we're so delighted to have this opportunity to talk with you in general and specifically about your new book, The Future of Catholic Higher Education. This is very exciting for us. And maybe we should say up front, just acknowledge that Father Heft and I have known each other for many years. He was the provost of the University of Dayton when I was first hired into my role as assistant professor there and been so grateful and delighted over the years to be friends with someone who I began being terribly, terribly frightened of, uh, <laughs> the provost of my university. And for I'm all harmless. kinds of good reason, of course. I'm right? harmless, Steve, harmless. <laughs> well, that's what I learned over time, but originally. <laughs> so thank you for your time and thank you for this wonderful book and all your wonderful books and articles and contributions to higher education. Here's a first question out of the box. Speaking of mutual friends, on the back jacket of your new book, is our mutual friend, Fiza W. Shireen, who's quoted. She's quoted, and we know her to be a professor of world literature and someone who is thoroughly cosmopolitan, student of culture and art and so forth. And she's quoted as saying, look, this new book gives one a sense of hope, she says, a sense of hope that Catholic higher education can overcome the challenges we face in education today, unquote. And I wanted to ask you right up front, maybe we ought to specify what are those challenges that we face and that we might be hopeful about, but what are the challenges before us? Well, there are quite a few, obviously, that face not just Catholic universities, face all the universities. One of them would be commercialism, where the liberal arts would be at stake and suffer 
from their absence or weakening. I think secularism is a problem, not just for religiously affiliated institutions. Um, I would say also for so-called secular institutions. There's no problem with the secular. The problem is with secularism. It's one thing to recognize the authentic and defensible interpretation of government and economic institutions from control of the church. I'm all in favor of that. But for any university to exclude in a conscious way religious and ethical dimensions, and I think it's not good to sharply distinguish them because they're related, to somehow put that to the side of, I think, weakens the quality of the discourse and certainly what students are going to be thinking about and picking up. The other thing too, and we, you and I have talked about this over the years, is the degree of specialization that graduate studies requires now, particularly on the PhD level. And there's no problem with specialization, but there's a problem with the fragmentation of knowledge. I mean, if there, if there wasn't specialization in biology, we'd never had the genetic discoveries and all those are great and you know I have no trouble with that but even there you'd like to have peripheral vision you'd like to have people that are doing this kind of work realize that even if they can determine the DNA sequence the questions of whether they should and how they should and what grounds are very real but I think too often real ethical and religious issues embedded in disciplines that are studied at the PhD level often unconsciously have them removed those issues. And it's more of an empirical study that can be verified through search of data facts, these kinds of things. So I think those challenges are there. I would say that one of the things that is true about Catholicism is it constantly talks about this and this, faith and reason, trying to talk about ways in which the integration of knowledge can take place. I mean, it's naive to think we'll bring all of that together. Stuff is burgeoning everywhere. And, and just to keep up within your own discipline can be a challenge. But to know that, in fact, talking to people in other disciplines is important, which is exactly what we tried to do and kind of actually forced in the book on empty churches. I might mention, I know you have other questions, but I might mention we always took at the Institute a long time figuring out whom to invite to a conversation. And usually it was a matter of people really good in their discipline and people really interested in the issues that religion and religious practice raise. On that volume, Empty Churches, we have a couple of atheists, there are a couple Mormons, not that they're close to atheism, but you know, uh, we have uh, a number of people that are too agnostic. That wasn't what was important. What was important is they were interested in the question and they were really good scholars. You know, just to follow up, commercialism, secularism, hyper-specialization, one way to kind of maybe talk about that is to say it undermines the cultivation and development of a discernment, a judgment, a capacity to, you know, engage in that integrative thinking and move forward on the basis of deeper and broader understanding of our human situation. Is that consistent with what you're saying, uh, that, therefore, is all the time. a crucial all the time. outcome of, of higher education? Think, for example, this one example. If a finance professor 
the School of Business, teaching various economic theories, would regularly simply ask the question, not impose an answer, what would be the consequences for the poor were this to be done? And what difference does that make? If a top flight finance professor could sincerely pose that question, if they weren't interested in the question, I wouldn't want them on the faculty. <laughs> Seriously. Not that they then trot out Catholic teaching on social justice and economics. I, I would be satisfied if they just asked the question in a serious way and didn't have it as a, you know, a kind of toss off. Yeah, that's it, Liz. I know we want to talk about the open circle and maybe one way to sort of segue to that is it's an interesting thing to say, you know, normally when you hear the concept open circle, you're thinking of openness to including other voices, but you're, you're also, you're saying something more about sort of our responsibility to address certain subjects or, or think in a certain way, like in a connected way, rather right. than in a disconnected way. And, and that, that's, I, I don't know, there's a kind of tension there with openness, yeah. you know, an obligation. Could you maybe speak about that a bit? Yeah. It, it, sorry, it, sorry for being so vague about that. No, no, no. The, the idea of the open circle, when I was first talking with Oxford, they, they liked the, they wanted the title, the future of Catholic higher ed, you know, and as I, I say, I have enough trouble understanding its past, you know, so, so there's kind of a pretentiousness about this. But I said, at least make sure you add to the title, the open circle. That's a guiding image for me. Yeah. And they said, they wrote, back, they wrote back and they said, yeah, but it doesn't make sense, an open circle. It's not a circle if it's open. And I said, you're right, you're right. I didn't want to present a closed circle. We all know what a closed circle is. There are the insiders and outsiders have nothing to do with it. And I want a group of people, certainly among them, Catholics that take the intellectual life very seriously in a wide variety of disciplines. But precisely because they're Catholic, they really realize they need to have the conversation with other disciplines, with people who are not Catholic, with people of other religions, people of no religion, people who might be atheists. There are atheists that are really worth conversation because I have found them and discovered them around here. Maybe they're, they're in closets in Catholic universities, but more of them around here. And they actually don't go, oh, a priest. Uh, they're intrigued. They're intrigued because they say, well, you know, he's got a chaired position at USC. He's got to have a brain, you know, but can he be a Catholic? And I said, well, I, I'm working on the experiment. Let, let's think about it together. Great conversations. There are atheists that are very serious about the role of religion and not just out of skepticism. They're, they're you know, like, let's make sure this thing doesn't do much damage. They're also intrigued. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. So the open circle is, I think, the only responsible position to take in a globalized universe, a globalized world. You, you can say, well, you have this problem of insider outside. You have it everywhere. I don't know how you avoid that if you try to have a mission. Whatever the university is, even if they claim that they're a marketplace of ideas and they have no mission, they have a mission. Every university has one. Everyone wants to, uh, in one way or another, forefront something that they're doing 
So uh, I would just say, let's be self-conscious about the mission and let's try to make sure that the circle is open. It's probably because I grew up in a family where my mother was Catholic, my father was Protestant, my dad, after my mom and dad left the farm and raised uh, me and my four siblings in the city, but we kept the contact with the farm. So it was rural life and the big city called Cleveland, Ohio. And my dad all his life worked for a Jew who was terrific. This Jew, Max Friedman, owned a whole chain of grocery stores and ran a warehouse and a coffee roasting plant. And my dad, who never had more than an eighth grade education, but I never doubted was bright, was moved to take over that whole place, constantly got promoted. And uh, Max Friedman would bring us fresh fruit from Florida. This was a luxury. Every Christmas, I grew up thinking this Jew was Santa Claus. I mean, it was, it was a marvelous experience. So that open circle thing, if I grew up in an Irish Catholic ghetto in Boston, I don't think it would have happened. <laughs> really? Well, that's sociology. <laughs> well, there you have it. And, and there was another experience. One I would tell you is I, I, I'm 6'5". I'm so I was tall even as a child. I mean, more than my peers usually. So that meant I sat in the back of the room. It was a Catholic grade school. It's a good school. Ursuline sisters, they were great. But this one sister I had when I was in the second grade was a little loopy. And one day in the middle of the class, it seemed to me, as I recall, out of nowhere, she made the announcement, and this is 1949. If you're not Catholic, you won't go to heaven. My dad and I were extremely close. And I remember standing up and saying very loudly, that's not true. And I was so incensed, I hit my fist in the desk and I pointed to her. I said, that's not true. My daddy's gone to heaven. And I've never forgotten that experience. And I could not clothe the experience with words then because I just didn't have the vocabulary. But with the passage of time, it made it clear to me that if someone said something stupid, and even if they were a religious authority, and my lived experience over time, consistent, said otherwise, I said no. And I think that was a great gift my father gave me. Oh. Well, I've heard that story before, and I, I never forget it. I, I won't. I, I, just, I, still get, I, I still get chills on my arms when I tell it because it was such a powerful moment. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's kind of having faith in your own ability to discern what's right and what's wrong, Absolutely. which is crucially important. Yeah. Freedom of conscience. Yeah. Is a primary way of thinking about how to live your life. Yeah. I always say to my students, you alone must make up your mind, but you should never make it up alone. <laughs> right. That's a good point. That would be stupid. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you're facing a big decision. You don't talk to anybody. You sit in a, and you huddle and say, it'll come to me. Well, maybe it will. Most likely, it won't. Best thing and smartest thing is to consult people you respect and know and so on. It's called the process of discernment. Yeah. You know, this new book of yours, it's the latest, as we noted in your introduction, a long, many, a long history of publishing works. And it's literally this one in particular, the future of Catholic higher education, in particular, is the product of many decades of 
reflection, study, you know, experience, including leadership experience, as we noted in the introduction, at the highest levels of the University of Dayton and, and broadly within Catholic higher education. And, you know, in particular, I just want to underscore you're having founded and led the, the Institute of Advanced Catholic Studies at the University of Southern California, a really important addition to that university and to the whole world's way of engaging with Catholicism and intellectual life in general. And, you know, based on all that, it makes you an expert of an extraordinary nature of, you know, experience and expertise. But for people like Liz and I, who are not Roman Catholics and not nearly as steeped in the history and complexity of Catholicism, what should folks like us, and you've, you've kind of spoken to this a bit already, what should folks like us, you know, learn or could learn from the way Catholic higher education in particular pursues its mission, fosters identity, discernment, and organizes in particular, thinking here academically, the curriculum, the co-curriculum, you know, the university life experience for the students particularly, but really everyone in community. So what, from your perspective, are the ideas and practices which maybe are the best candidates for this universal concern that we all have, regardless of whether we're Catholic? That's a great question. It's not easy to answer. I could say simply, it would be to work with the themes of Catholic social teaching. Now, what's Catholic social teaching? You have dogmatics represented, for example, by the creed. I believe in God, the Father, my name, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and so on. And then you also have some effort to try to say, if these are the beliefs, what are the consequences of those beliefs? And you, Steve, have looked at those when we were together and thinking about certain things. And you could see that in many instances, those could be embraced by people who would be agnostics. They would be agnostics. I'll tell you a story. I was trying to raise money. I tried to raise money every year when I was running the Institute. And I had lunch one day with this guy. It was a really good Catholic. He ran an accounting firm. Nice guy. It was around 2016 because the encyclical by the Pope on the environment had come out. And he was so upset. He said, why does the Pope get into politics? Like, this is ridiculous. Why does he stay out of it? This is not what the church is about. And I said to him, I said, have you, have you read the encyclical? He said, no, no, I haven't. I said, well, do you think it might be good if you read it? And then we can talk about it. Okay. So we talked about other stuff. <laughs> about three months later, we had another lunch. And he starts in again, say, oh, this Pope, you know, he says, I <clears throat> and I said, have you read the encyclical? He said, no. I said, then we're not talking about it. And needless to say, I raised no money. But, <laughs> but what people miss, I mean, there are a lot of people deeply and rightly concerned about the environment, which is a global issue, not just a local issue. It's a global issue. What expertise, what claim does a Pope have to say about that? I say it's a theological one. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. If, and Muslims and Jews say the same thing, that this is all God's creation. This is God's gift. Don't trash it. We're, we're not landlords. We're tenants. We should be taking care of this. We should sometimes. So this basic principle was a theological, that was totally lost. 
because in our country, everything gets politicized. And the roots of it get lost. So one of the things I think about is if you look at Catholic social teaching, the dignity of the human person, whoever it is, the social nature of the person, the option for the poor, a commitment to social justice. Now, these are all rooted theologically. Most people who've been raised in a kind of secular mindset can identify with those. These are good things, but they never make the connection to a theological vision of the nature of the human person created in God's image and likeness. Again, Jews and Muslims affirm that. So let's draw out those things and share that conversation and find that there is a kind of a background, a texture that can shape an institution's vision where people, whether they're Catholic or not, or believers or not, can tie into this at various different levels. And that's, that's what I think is one of the great contributions that Catholic colleges and universities can make if they pursue that, if they pursue that. I just finished writing a chapter on leadership for a book that's going to be published by Paulus Press on what would happen if Catholic colleges and universities took more seriously Catholic social teaching and shaping their way of understanding curriculum and mission. So we'll see, should be out next spring sometime. So let's talk about academic freedom and what you describe as a new sociological context and connect these to our current pandemic experience and also, as you just mentioned, our current climate emergency. So the question is, how can universities, any university, provide enough community to support traditional age students at the same time as foster the individual freedom they and their faculty instructors and mentors need in order to discover new knowledge and question received wisdom. So does the pandemic experience suggest a new balance? What's the right balance or is balance not even the right concept? Uh, again, another really good question. We'll get through the pandemic. It's been deeply dehumanizing and disorienting for a lot of people, more so than people actually realize. Is there anybody that doesn't like to be hugged? I mean, you know, you come up and you go, please. I mean, this is, this is really unfortunate. We'll get through this. So the deeper issues in terms of academic freedom and the importance of academic freedom, and particularly at a place, Catholic University, where there's hierarchy and all of these kind of questions, so on, these are there. It's very interesting in the debates that led up to the future and nature and mission of Catholic higher ed, the Pope in 1990 published an important document called From the Heart of the Church, Ex Cordia Ecclesiae. In it, there's a clear statement in favor of institutional autonomy and academic freedom, comma, property understood. Okay, so then you go, well, okay, now we know. That means no real academic freedom. Well, not so, not so. In the book, I try to argue rather clearly, I hope, how academic freedom the way it's defined by the AAUP tends to be more restrictive in terms of what it respects as valid knowledge than it should be. 
It's too influ influenced by what I would call a kind of scientism. Things that could be empirically verified really constitute real knowledge. I don't know what happens to literature, what happens to Shakespeare, what happens to Dante, all those kind of things. These are absolutely crucial parts of what it means to be a human being, whether you're a religious believer or not. The other angle I would take on this that I've often said, if, and this is typical for almost every Catholic university because of the kind of polarized nature of a lot of Catholics themselves today, it's almost impossible to invite a thoughtful pro-choice speaker to campus. I mean, there would be those who would dispute anyone who's pro-choice could be a thinker. But let's say there are, there are people. If I were president of the university, the phone would ring off. Two of the board members would say, I'm quitting. You know, you're not getting any more donations from me. All that kind of nonsense. Perfectly predictable. However, what I would say is lacking at a place like that, besides courage and leadership, is a number of faculty Catholic and not necessarily Catholic, who tenured would invite that person and respectfully engage them publicly about their position. That would be an education. That would be a good thing to do. Whereas if you create a bubble where only one point of view is there, and then you graduate them, and then they're in a total maze of all, never having experienced a really thoughtful, probing debate about a serious moral issue. So that's where academic freedom, I think, is really important, to open that up. The other thing I would say this, in my experience, if you think of the image of a tree, the deeper you get into a religious tradition, that's not necessarily intense fervor, but deeper in understanding, historically and so on, the more flexible the more you can withstand cross currents and not break. The roots are deep. It's, it's the difference, you've, this is an old saying, but I love it. The difference between tradition and traditionalism. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the These are ideas that have been handed on because they give life, they have vitality. They can illuminate issues that we face today instead of just going, we got some roots to think about it. Whereas traditionalism is we do it because we always done that and that's the way it is. I have no interest in traditionalism. Tradition is a living, fecund power that transcends, well, another Ill illness of the academy is what I call presentism. I am amazed at how many faculty members, including historians that don't know the history of history that have never stepped back and said, well, gee, how could my discipline of sociology in the hands of a few people in 1900 be such a promoter of eugenics? So do I believe in science? Well, it depends. <laughs> I'm gonna test it. Once you know some history, it, it, it helps a great deal in trying to answer these things. And it opens up academic freedom, I think, in a very rich way. You know, speaking of quote-unquote history, just going back a little bit in our experience as modern people, yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you about John Henry Newman because 
you know, a lot of people might regard him as a historical figure, but I, I don't think you do or I do. And I, what was really sort of jumped, I know you to be someone who's been long a student of his and engaged his work. But what struck me in your new book is that you paired him alongside of two others, Jesus and Mary, and named all three as your true North, your North stars, you know? And I thought, well, especially for the non-Catholic reader or listener in our case today, you know, it would be probably helpful if you could maybe share a little bit about why you so regard uh, Newman and why at that highest level, you know, of respect that you, you, uh, you know, you discuss his work and relevance to our current times. Let me show you something. Okay. Now, listeners, uh, Father Heff is now standing and pointing to his bookshelf and rows and rows of books, uh, I suppose, by and about Newman. Yeah. <laughs> a couple shelves of Newman. I, I, I love the man. Uh, I first encountered him in grad school and I never stopped reading. Um, so 1801 to 1890, so pretty much the span of the 19th century. Uh, a lot of things happening then uh, in terms of beginning of secular movements, the question of science really getting a grip, a deeper, deeper grip on things, Darwin, evolution, all these kinds of things. So it's a fascinating period. He Here's another point. This is another way to defend the idea of the open circle. Some of the people that made the greatest contribution to a tradition have been raised in another tradition and converted to Catholicism. Newman was uh, an Anglican. And as an Anglican, he learned to do theology through history with a particular sensitivity to psychology as it was understood then. So he doesn't pay much attention to the kind of classical proofs, so-called proofs, that's a misunderstanding, the five proofs of God's existence. He talked about how a person deals with their conscience. It's kind of a psychological emphasis on that. Uh, he has a beautiful chapter on freedom of conscience in one of his books. So here you've got someone that grew up in one tradition and benefited from it immensely, but immensely, but also was critical of certain things. And then at the age of 44, having written a major book on the development of doctrine, how doctrine over time evolves, and he saw as it evolved, it pointed to Catholicism. And then he took, he made the choice, and he, he became a Catholic, and he continued to write a great deal. He was distrusted by the Anglicans in the first part of his life because he sounded too Catholic. And he was distrusted by the Catholics in the latter part of his life because he didn't sound Catholic enough. And he wasn't a person who really did what was called scholastic philosophy and theology. He had a very different approach, talked about the importance of consulting the laity, the rights of conscience. Think of this. What, what is the act of faith? And, and in one of his great works, The Grammar of Ascent, 1870, he published it. He was 69. He, he said, an act of faith is something, he says, ultimately, that is guided by the spirit. But it's based upon a convergence of probabilities. No slam dunk proof. There's no slam dunk proof. I mean, you might have a vision. I never had one. And most people who claim that they have, I don't trust them usually. But a convergence of probabilities where you're open to a variety of ways of thinking, hunches, literature, science, all those things. 
and you say this, it's pointing, it's, it's kind of coming around this thing. Newman, and then add to this, can he write? <laughs> Newman is a master writer. I love the way he writes, according to his phrases. Last point, his motto, what's his motto? Core ad core loquitur. Heart speaks to heart. I think we're all old enough to realize that the most precious things that we have are people that are really close and genuine friends who love us in our weakness, who know us as we really are, and still very credibly say, I love you, you're wonderful. That's at the core, odd core, the, the heart speaks. Now, is that irrational? No. Is it just rational? No. It's more than rational. And that's where I, I think Newman is, you know, terrific. He was just canonized just recently. He yeah. once wrote, I wrote too much stuff, 25, 25 volumes of personal letters. He said, anyone that writes this much could never be canonized because you let, you let too much out. They're going to find out. And he's pretty critical on, on some bishops. Oh, oh. You know, that, that sounds like a title for a new book, More Than Rational. <laughs> yeah. More yeah. Than Rational. Yeah, it could be the case. Could be the case. I have to tell you, when I said Mary and the intellectual life, um, one of our seasoned historians, Irving Beauregard at the University of Dayton, caught me in the hall after the announcement of that was originally an address to the faculty. And he said, Father Heft, skeptic, Father Heft, tell me, what does a teenage Jewish girl in the backwater of the Roman Empire know about the intellectual life? <laughs> And I said, Irving, come and see. He didn't know I was quoting the Gospel of John when I said that, come and see. But <laughs> Nor did I just now, I'll have to admit. Um, <laughs> so we're, you know, this is a lengthy book and there's so much to talk about. Maybe, but we're under, you know, time constraints today. So Liz, maybe one last question and then we'll, we'll think about coming to conclusion. While your book is certainly of interest to all educators, regardless of mission and context, it is principally about Catholic higher education after all, and thus the role of Catholic theology and of departments of religious studies at Catholic universities is crucial to your argument overall and about liberal arts education particularly, and for those blissfully unaware, is an endemic and perennial source of tension over academic freedom and fidelity to sanctioned church teachings. Can you share the core of your thinking in this area? For those looking for a fuller understanding, I highly recommend you buy the book. I loved it. Being a non-Catholic, I thought it was great. <laughs> I'm honored that you read it. Give me one second. Okay. Uh, for those listening, uh, Father Heft is now searching in his office for a book. <laughs> this is a book oh learning ignorance, ignorance yeah. intellectual humility among jews christians and muslims it grew out of a, a full week-long conference that we held in jerusalem some years back with five muslims five jewish and five christian scholars this is what i think the contribution that a religiously affiliated institution who takes the intellectual life seriously 
can make to all of higher education. And it is what I would call intellectual humility, epistemic humility, if you will. What do I mean by that? We all know the, the saying, the more you know, the more you don't know. I often think of a, a, a person who's on the cutting edge of their discipline is very aware, not only of what's not known, but also of what's known, but only partially, or perhaps even incorrectly, and can guide a PhD student to look at these things. And they know what's not known. If you say in, in a religious context, you say, the more you know, the more you don't know, rooted in Catholicism is the doctrine of analogy. Mm. Analogy, it's, an, it's analogous, it's, it's kind of compared to. There's the biblical statement, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. It looks like a total disconnect between the human being and God. It would be better to understand it this way. Understand that whatever you know about God, there's a lot more you don't know. Always. Even if you believe in Jesus and his revelation, how do you understand so many aspects of this whole thing? And all you can use, all you can use is human language. And human language is clearly limited. Any of you that really, and this is another problem today in our world, any of you that really master more than one language, two or three languages, you realize some languages really do some things really well. Others, language is limited, including the language of the Bible. One of the great things at Vatican II, it says, the Bible is utterly reliable comma, in everything that is meant for the believer's salvation, which means there are quite a few things in the Bible that are not meant for the believer's salvation, and they could be wrong. They could be mistaken. So I think one of the great contributions of a serious, religiously affiliated institution is intellectual humility. This book that we worked on, and, and the chapter that I wrote for it, it's called humble infallibility. And now we have a Pope that kind of embodies that. <laughs> yeah, so, so my, my sense is it gives a kind of fresh vitality to religion that often today you see it either as fundamentalism or liberating secularism. I don't want either. Is that, is that am I making sense? Yes, well. I think so. Hmm. You know, I'm reminded we began by sort of quoting our mutual friend, Dr. Shireen, and yeah. she was saying, you know, your book brings hope for the future of Catholic higher education and all education. And I, you know, we began by emphasizing some of the impediments, uh, that the challenges that we need to address. But what does give us hope for, and when we look forward to the future of higher education, Catholic and otherwise? As a believer, a religious believer, I say I am a person of hope. I'm not optimistic and I'm not pessimistic. Both optimism and pessimism are totalisms. They already have figured out the ending. You know, the glass is always half empty or something like that. I'm a person of hope. So what's critical to me is not so much success, though I'd really love to have it. But I don't know when I have it. When have I been really successful? What, what would I even count? I go back to the idea of friendships as really central. 
But I would say what gives me hope is the basic goodness of people whom I meet. And I meet a number of people that are really good. And you know what? They're usually not featured in the media. I remember a student of mine, very bright guy, went on to Cornell, got a law degree and so on. I was giving a talk in Cleveland years ago, maybe a couple hundred people were there. I don't even remember what the topic was. And, and he put up his hand at the Q&A period. And I knew, I mean, the guy's bright. So I said, okay, get ready, Jim. And, and he says, he says, how can you stay hopeful given the state of the world? I said to him, how do you know the state of the world? He says, well, you know, CNN and all this. I said, why would you ever assume that this conveys to you the state of the world? There are all kinds of good things. Like I said, this talk, presentation, nobody's covering it. There are a lot of good deeds, caring deeds that people do for each other. Doesn't get in the newspapers. So one of the most important things for somebody that wants to be wise is fast from the media and read good books. Otherwise, you're going to get discouraged. If not discouraged, angry. Angry. So I try to read Newman and stay calm. Well, that's an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Read Newman, stay calm. That's you have a T-shirt with that on it, do you? <laughs> I haven't thought of that. <laughs> Boy, what a pleasure this has been um, to have this opportunity to just, again, very briefly touch upon some of the themes in your new book and your second new book as well. I'm glad you you brought that in, and we want to you know encourage our listeners to consider going to the Oxford University Press website or Amazon or wherever you get your excellent books these days. And, you know, consider picking up The Future of Catholic Higher Education by Father James L. Heft. And you will not be disappointed, in my opinion. And so thank you so much for your time today, Father Heft, and for all the work you've done for many, many years to benefit education in our world. Thank you. Thank you. A real pleasure. And thanks to our listeners of Reinventing You, a podcast of the Association for Undergraduate Education at Research Universities, or URU. Reinventing You is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about URU, check us out at our new URL, URU.org. That's U-E-R-U.org. You remembers can listen to an extended version of this interview at the members section of this site. <laughs>